Greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. I am always am your host, Lahi and Liberal. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I think we got a great show for you guys. Uh, for anyone who is uh, maybe new to this program or what I do here, uh, this is essentially a podcast where we will be using legal and moral philosophy to discuss current events as it relates to various aspects of politics and culture. Uh, for those of you who are more familiar with the show, you probably remember that uh, the last episode we were talking quite a bit about the privileges and immunities clause in the 14th Amendment uh, and a concept that is known uh, as the incorporation doctrine. And we were doing all that as a setup to this video today where we are going to be uh, going through uh, a clip uh, that comes from people over at the 10th Amendment Center where they are talking about incorporation doctrine. Uh, and I essentially, while I really like those guys and I really respect what they do a lot in this case, uh, I, I think they are wrong. Uh, and I also think because the 14th Amendment is so relevant uh, and important for, for better or worse uh, to the way our country uh, runs today and the way the government functions today, that is something that's really uh, important to have a clear understanding on. Uh, and the 14th Amendment itself is a very complicated uh, and, and sort of esoteric subject. Uh, and then when we get into different parts of it, such as the incorporation doctrine, uh, the state action doctrine, and as we'll be getting into today, uh, something known as substantive due process, uh, it, it, it's really uh, a very complex thing to understand, uh, but again, it's really, really important. Uh, so that is what we are going to be talking about today. As I kind of told you guys last time, uh, I, I want to uh, play you a clip here uh, from an episode of the podcast Path to Liberty that is hosted by Michael Bullen, who is the founder of the 10th Amendment Center. Uh, and again, I really, really want to stress that I really like these guys uh, I really respect the work that they do, uh, but just in this one particular case, uh, I really uh, kind of take umbrage uh, with their uh, with their analysis here. Uh, so, uh, you know, what? why don't we just go right to the clip uh, from those guys uh, talking about the incorporation doctrine, play it a couple of minutes long, uh, and then we can come back and discuss it after that. So now that we have kind of that as the foundation, really what we're talking about are two main views from constitutionalists on the answer to the question, can they do this type of a lockdown here in the United States, whether nationally, state, or just on a local or regional level? And really your view of whether or not you're going to agree really hinges a lot on your view of something known as the incorporation doctrine. This is something that I know I keep saying, oh, I got to cover this at some point. Timothy Martin, who often comments on our YouTube channel, talks about incorporation and pointing out various organizations who support it that he doesn't like. And we've done a lot of work about incorporation here, but there are people who are good 
Well, basically, both sides of this, you're going to find people saying, well, that guy's not a constitutionalist, that guy's not a constitutionalist, that girl's not a constitutionalist, and on and on and on, because they're two totally different views of how to look at the Constitution and how things play out between the federal government and the states. The short version, this is a very short version. There are long books and many of them that really need to be read to really understand the incorporation doctrine. I am not the best of the best on this. Some of the really good people out there are people like uh, Kevin Gutzman, Dave Benner, uh, Mike Meharry's done a lot of writing on this as well. Lawrence Vance, I think over at lewrockwell.com some years ago used to write about this as well. But anyways, the short version, when the Bill of Rights was ratified in 1791, no one, no one thought the Bill of Rights, this, may, this is actually a surprise to a lot of people, no one thought the Bill of Rights actually applied to any level of government other than the federal government. No one thought this no one thought the Bill of Rights was enforceable by the federal government on the states. There's even a preamble to the Bill of Rights that specifically talks about creating a list of further declaratory and restrictive clauses for the federal government. So they added those things because a lot of people were concerned about the federal government having too much power. And they're like, OK, well, as the, the, the Constitution now stands, this was a lot of the opposition from so-called anti-federalists. They said, as it now stands, we're not going to vote in support. But if there's promises or guarantees of further restrictions on the federal government, if we're going to get a Bill of Rights, for example, more amendments, then we'll be on board. And that's what the Bill of Rights was really all about, really hammering home these additional restrictions on the federal government. But then starting in 1925, and this is where I think it gets a little bit weird. So in 1925, the federal courts started reading or taking the position that the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, I believe, late 1860. So we're talking about six decades later, the, after ratification of the 14th Amendment, the federal court started taking the position that the Bill of Rights were incorporated on the states. And that's the term incorporated. It was incorporated into the federal powers to enforce upon the states. And they've done it through what's called selective incorporation. They take a case here and a case there, and they incorporate part of the Fifth Amendment. So for example, part of the Fifth Amendment today isn't fully incorporated yet. I'm not sure about the second, but they're basically different bits and pieces that have been added into this incorporation doctrine, which started in the courts in 1925. Now, on the pro-incorporation doctrine side of this question that we're covering today is Judge Andrew Napolitano. We All right. So that gives you uh, really the basis for uh, what I want to discuss here today. Uh, and I want to say if you go down to the uh, description for this video, uh, I will have a link to the particular episode of Path to Liberty uh, that I clipped uh, that piece from, uh, I suggest you go over and you watch the whole thing to get the full context. Uh, and then also, uh, he, uh, on the show notes page, uh, has, uh, some further links with the sources that he is using. And so those will be available on that show notes page. I'll also have a direct link to those down in the description as well. So you can check them out. Uh, and then I'm going to put a link to the 10th amendment centers, uh, just their homepage. Uh, as well. And if you're not familiar with them, you should just go check them out uh, in general. They really are a fantastic organization. Uh, they do a lot of good work. They have a lot of great information. Uh, 
So with that being said, let's kind of like uh, get into the uh, meat of what we're going to talk about today. So uh, Mike uh, has, as I mentioned, several articles on the show notes page uh, that give uh, the context and evidence uh, that sort of back up what he was talking about in this clip. Uh, one of them is an article by Mike Meharry, who is talking about how the framers of the Bill of Rights drafted with the limited attention of it, implying, uh, of it applying only to the federal government. No one disputes this as a fact. Uh, but the other sources uh, that Mike are using uh, are all really clearly getting their information from one singular source. Uh, and this is a, a, a jurist known as Raoul Berger. Uh, and particularly Mike, uh, uh, in this clip, as well as an additional article uh, that is linked on the show notes page from a guy named Dave Benner, who's also great, too. I love Dave. I, I know him personally, actually. But uh, so anyways, uh, they, Mike and Dave, uh, are all really kind of getting their information uh, from this guy, Raul Berger. Uh, and he has a, a link to an article-sized clip of uh, the work by Berger that we're talking about. This is uh, from his seminal 1977 book known as Government by Judiciary. Now, uh, Raoul Berger is uh, a legend. And if you guys recall, uh, a few months ago when it became clear that they were planning on bringing articles of impeachment against Trump, I did a couple shows talking about executive privilege. Uh, and if you saw those, you likely remember me mentioning Berger because his work uh, on that subject is second to none. Uh, and even uh, what he writes in Government by Judiciary is a, fan uh, a fascinating book. It's a great book. Um, I remember first reading it uh, early on when I was getting the JD in uh, constitutional law, and it just absolutely blew me away. Uh, and while much of what he wrote in there uh, that are really his original conclusions. I mean, it, it, uh, things that he came up with that uh, had just not really been researched and looked into before uh, hold up really well. And especially when we get to the uh, aspect of con law uh, that gets into the progressive era and the Warren court. Uh, but the thing is, before that, uh, I think he makes some fundamental mistakes uh, in dealing with the particular portion that is relevant relevant to our discussion today. Uh, and so I we're going to take a look here at just a couple of the sources that I used uh, in the last video as kind of an outline. But uh, I, I if you have not seen uh, the last video I put out, it's really, really important you go watch that first. I'll put a link to that down in the description below. But um, I gave I gave all the background that we need so I can just zip through this here without having to backtrack and explain myself too much. Uh, so there's a good chance if you haven't seen the last video uh, and you're watching this one, there, it may not make a lot of sense to you. Uh, so you really got to go back and check that last one out uh, and then uh, come back to this one. But if you remember, we were talking about the history of the 14th Amendment, and as you can see uh, outlined here, uh, we talked about its relation to uh, the Article 4 Privileges and Immunities Clause uh, that is found right in the body of the Constitution itself, uh, as well as the uh, really sort of the definitive case defining the meaning of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in Article 4, which is a case known as Corfield versus Coriel. 
Uh, and then also relevant is the uh, Dred Scott case, uh, because a large part of what the 14th Amendment was meant to do was to essentially uh, repudiate uh, the decision that came out of Dred Scott v. Stanford. Uh, and we also tied in, of course, to the 13th Amendment, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And these are all the sources that kind of lead up to uh, what you need to know uh, about the 14th Amendment. And just to refresh real quick, uh, the 14th Amendment, we're worried about Section 1, which is where the incorporation doctrine comes from. Uh, Section 1 has four clauses. It has the Citizenship Clause, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the Due Process Clause, and uh, the Equal Protection Clause. So uh, let's talk about uh, where I start to... Uh, part ways with Raoul Berger and then by extension uh, with the guys over at the 10th Amendment Center on this. Uh, now, personally, and this this is just my own uh, belief, is, is that uh, the reason a uh, constitutional originalist would reject the incorporation doctrine is really more of a matter of preference leading to conclusions uh, that I think seem to contradict the facts uh, and as a matter of fact, you contradict the very methodology of constitutional originalism itself. Now, Raoul Berger himself uh, believed in an application of original intent, uh, as in uh, what did the people who wrote a law or statute or amendment mean to accomplish by writing it, uh, which, uh, when the text itself is at all vague or ambiguous, uh, will rely on a structural method of context such as official records of the debates and discussions that occurred with the legislators who ratified the relevant provision. So a very good example of what we're talking about here uh, is a uh, quote from uh, Jacob Howard that I used in the last video. If you remember, he was uh, one of the two sponsors of the bill. We had John Bingham sponsor the bill in the House, and Jacob Howard was the senator who sponsored uh, the bill that came became to be known, you know, the 14th Amendment in uh, the Senate. And uh, so he said in his floor speech when he introduced the 14th Amendment to, to bring it up for debate uh, and for a vote, uh, he uh, we're talking about the incorporation doctrine here, and it, the incorporation doctrine, as you'll remember from yesterday, comes specifically out of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, and we can see that here with his quote where he said, Privileges or immunities fall into two categories. First, those protected by Article 4. Moreover, the rights listed in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which track the fundamental rights identified in the 1823 case of Corfield versus Coriel, and next, the personal rights guaranteed and secured by the first eight amendments to the Constitution. And you guys will remember that is the incorporation doctrine. That is the belief uh, that the uh, 14th Amendment incorporated the Bill of Rights onto the states. So, uh, anyway, as I just read here, I mean, the very people who we know wrote, sponsored, and ratified the bill, uh, all were very explicit uh, that this amendment protected, among other things, the first eight amendments of the Constitution. Uh, however, Berger writes this off in his book uh, by quoting several uh, inconsequential uh, legislators and what they had to say about the purpose of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, he then concludes, because the Civil Rights Act was never meant to incorporate the Bill of Rights onto the states, 
and the 14th Amendment was about incorporating the Civil Rights Act of 1866, that the 14th Amendment does not incorporate the Bill of Rights, largely ignoring the statements and debates about the amendment itself. Uh, he briefly says that maybe a couple legislators claim at some point that the 14th Amendment included uh, a Bill of Rights, but he insists that these were not people of any consequence to the 14th Amendment, which seems like an odd thing to say uh, uh, when we consider that two of the sources that we are using, uh, that I used, were, uh, like I said before, Jacob Howard, who was uh, the bill's sponsor in the Senate, uh, as well as John Bingham, who was not only the sponsor in uh, the House, but who is uh, generally acknowledged as the framer of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. Now, to get to uh, what they are talking about here, uh, Mike and the guys over at 10th Amendment Center, as well as Berger, uh, they're kind of right uh, when they talk about this sudden uh, incorporation that begins to occur in the 1920s. But here is the rub. Uh, they are not referring to the incorporation doctrine as such. An originalist reading of the Privileges and Immunities Clause relies on a doctrine of state action to incorporate the privileges and immunities onto the states, as we have covered last time in great detail. Uh, the original meaning of this, as I pointed out, comes from several relevant sources, uh, from Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, as well as the 1823 case of Corfield versus Coriel, and so on. And uh, what Mike uh, and Raoul Berger are talking about uh, is not incorporation doctrine. They are talking about something different. Uh, this is something known as selective incorporation. Uh, and this is what this is where we get into the topic of substantive due process, because this is uh, the doctrine that is being used for this selective incorporation. And this substantive due process does not come from the privileges and immunities clause, which is where uh, the incorporation doctrine is that you come from. Uh, instead, substantive due process comes from the due process clause and the equal protection clause. And so this is essentially the principle that manifests first in the 1920s. Uh, and it's important to recognize that the incorporation doctrine and selective incorporation as a, as a matter of substantive due process uh, may sound similar, but they are really not the same thing at all. And as I, if you watched the last show, as you should have, uh, you have a clear picture of what incorporation meant under the Privileges and Immunities Clause. Uh, so today we are going to be uh, not so much focusing on that part of it, on what the incorporation doctrine is. Instead, we are going to be discussing what substantive due process is. Uh, and I will be demonstrating uh, that the views of the, the good people over at the Tenth Amendment Center uh, when talking about selective incorporation. Uh, they are confusing the incorporation doctrine and substantive due process. So substantive due process and select incorporation in the United States constitutional law are, uh, it, by definition, principles uh, allowing courts to protect certain fundamental rights from government interference, even if procedural protections are already present or if the rights are not specifically mentioned elsewhere in the U.S. Constitution. And this is an approach that was uh, originated in a case known as Gitlow v. New York in 1925. Now, the term substantive due process is used in modern discourse conventionally 
uh, it does not refer to the principle uh, of legality or limitations on Congress's power to prescribe uh, novel adjudicatory procedures for the deprivation of life, liberty, or property. Uh, instead, it generally refers to limitations on the substance of legislation itself, uh, other than uh, legislation that seeks to alter the procedural aspects of due process of law. So uh, a few uh, constitutional doctrines generate more heat uh, even to today than substantive due process. Many scholars do doubt whether there is any legitimate doctrine of substantive due process, uh, and there's a dispute among those who do advocate some form of substantive due process about the scope and content of that particular doctrine. Now, uh, as we kind of touched on last time, according to the modern Supreme Court precedent, it is the Due Process Clause and the Equal Protection Clause that incorporates the Bill of Rights through selective incorporation, the actual text of the amendment itself notwithstanding. Because a textualist reading uh, would rely not on due process or equal protection, but on the state action doctrine of the Privileges and Immunities Clause. So the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and this is why I say that this, this is really important to understand for today, uh, because the Equal Protection Clause uh, is one of the most litigated and significant provisions in contemporary constitutional law. Now, the meaning of the clause is bound up in the entire uh, drama of the Civil War and Reconstruction, and in particular, slavery and emancipation. So, uh, thus, the Equal Protection Clause can be understood only as an organic part of the 14th Amendment uh, and in the broader context of all Reconstruction Amendments. Now, many advocates of substantive due process uh, will openly askew any reliance on original meaning as support for their position. Uh, there are, however, some uh, people who find originalists warrant for the doctrine uh, and originalist defenders of substantive due process uh, emphasize the due process clause's link to the law of the land provision uh, and the likely 18th century American understanding of that provision. Uh, now, Americans were very familiar with and influenced by uh, the writings of English jurists and legal scholars, uh, people such as Sir Edward Coke and Sir William Blackstone. Uh, in the 17th century, Coke sought to check the arbitrary rule of the Stuart monarchs by emphasizing that same principle of law of the land clauses found in the Magna Carta that is said to encompass both procedural safeguards and substantive limitations on the power of government. So monopoly grants, according to Koch, were invalid as contrary to the law of the land. Scholars have debated whether Koch's understanding of Magna Carta was correct, but there is no doubt that his views markedly influence constitutional develop here in the American colonies. Uh, and same with Blackstone uh, in his widely read and influential commentaries on the common law of England. He also discusses Magna Carta's law of the land provision in terms of both procedure and substance. Thus, uh, some have argued that the founding era persons uh, conversant with Blackstone and Coke uh, would be disposed to a broad reading of the law of the land provision so as to place certain fundamental rights beyond the reach of government uh, and the Fifth Amendment's due process clause, 
Uh, and therefore, the 14th Amendment's due process clause are best understood by looking at them as part of this law of the land tradition. Now, the Supreme Court at first construed very narrowly the due process requirement of the 14th Amendment. Uh, it adhered to the view that the Bill of Rights was not extended to these states by the virtue of the amendment. Uh, it further held that the due process clause in the 5th and 14th Amendment had the same meaning uh, so that substantive due process under the two provisions uh, had to stand or fall together. And disagreeing with the majority was Justice uh, Harlan, who argued that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment created a national standard of rights, uh, as well as Justice Stephen J. Field, who forcefully maintained that the due process clause protected the right to pursue lawful trades and contractual freedom from abridgment by the states. Now, Field's understanding of the 14th Amendment gained ground on the Supreme Court uh, in the late 19th century, uh, and this uh, eventually led to the political triumph of the New Deal and the resulting Constitutional Revolution of 1937, which really uh, transformed entirely our interpretation of the Due Process Clause. Now, the Supreme Court signaled its rejection of substantive due process as a basis on which to review economic legislation in a case known as West Coast Hotel Co. versus Parish that came in 1937. And until this point, state and federal courts had not carefully differentiated between procedural and substantive components of due process. And as the unitary understanding of due process shattered, uh, judges began in the 1940s to employ the term substantive due process for the very first time. Now, more controversial uh, has been the Supreme Court's revival of substantive due process to safeguard non-economic rights that are not set out in the written text of the Constitution. Some modern critics, such as Robert H. Bork, uh, have insisted that due process pertains entirely to matters of procedure and that the courts have gone beyond its function in finding that the due process, in finding that due process protects certain substantive liberties. Uh, this is also echoed by Justice Antonin Scalia. Uh, he felt very strongly in particular. Uh, he was a critic of the inconsistent picking among rights to receive substantive due process protection. And in the discovery of the new liberties protected by due process, the court uh, has more recently left behind both the text of the Constitution and historical tradition. So, um... What I really find odd, though, uh, is that uh, Michael Bolden, in that clip, uses this failure to act uh, as evidence that the amendment was not meant to accomplish an incorporation of the Bill of Rights. But I, I think actually the correct view of this fact uh, is that it makes a strong argument for an idea uh, that I, I believe Mike and I would both stand for, uh, and that is that uh, even when it comes to unambiguous constitutional provisions, natural rights, and civil privileges and immunities that history shows us we cannot and should not uh, entrust the courts to be protectors of each of our fundamental natural rights because they constantly fail to uphold the limited nature of government and the expansive nature of individual liberties that we retain. Uh, and this can actually be seen directly uh, right in an exchange that he and I had uh, down in the comments section of the very video of the podcast that I pulled that clip from. 
here, if we look uh, essentially at his comment on the bottom there, uh, he says, uh, as far as uh, the fight to liberty being gained by inches, I absolutely agree. Uh, but we believe the inches gained are through resistance, not the courts. In fact, we'd make a case, which is too long for a common thread, that focusing on courts has actually been a huge part of the problem, as Thomas Jefferson warned. Again, I appreciate your thoughts and acknowledge on this issue. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, so, really, uh, this, uh, this is where it kind of gets uh, odd to me, because we can see here that he is saying that we should not be looking to the courts as the source of our protectors of our liberties, something with which I entirely agree. But he also, uh, separately, in that clip I played, uh, comes to the conclusion uh, that the 14th Amendment did not incorporate the Bill of Rights, and his evidence for this is that he can't find an example of the Supreme Court protecting uh, the incorporation doctrine uh, in any case before 1925. So uh, he essentially says that because he can't find an instance of the Supreme Court applying the incorporation doctrine onto the states before 1925, that must mean no one believed that the 14th Amendment was meant to incorporate the Bill of Rights onto the states. Uh, but this is odd because by his own logic, we would also have to conclude uh, that there is absolutely no evidence, and I mean not a single shred of evidence, that the Bill of Rights applied to the federal government before 1833. So despite the fact that the Bill of Rights was written and ratified in 1791, uh, it wasn't actually ruled on in this fashion by the Supreme Court uh, until an 1833 case known as Baron v. Baltimore. And this was the very first time that the Supreme Court ruled that the Bill of Rights was intended to be implied to the federal government, as was uh, written by John Marshall in his, uh, uh, in his ruling. So originalism and textualism uh, both reject this notion of understanding the Constitution through judicial interpretation uh, and hold that the words of the text are what matter and the original public meaning of a provision. But uh, it would appear that Mike is getting his definition of the 14th Amendment uh, from a notion of government by judiciary, which is the very concept that he claims to be repudiating. Well, that's uh, really all I have for you guys today. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, and as always, something I say is if you haven't subscribed to my channel, uh, please take a second and subscribe so you can see when I have new videos up. Uh, I'm not really putting them up on a uh, regular basis or by schedule per se, which I do want to start doing. But so in the meantime, if you want to find out when new videos are posted, uh, subscribe to the channel and that way you can get notifications that tell you more. Uh, and... Uh, I also would say that uh, if you enjoyed uh, this video, uh, just take a minute for me, please, uh, and share it with someone who you think might enjoy it. Uh, and if you could just uh, pass this along uh, and kind of help to spread uh, this message uh, of, of liberty uh, and through a constitutional interpretation, uh, I would really appreciate it. So uh, until next time, I have been Locking Liberal. 
This has been Categorical Imperatives. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. And as always, Delenda S. Cartago.